Previously on the Burning Archive, Flowers of Empire Under Charles V in the late 1400s and 1500s That in history has been one of the largest and most powerful empires of all time But now has faded into obscurity Spain that with Portugal broke out of the westernmost peninsula of Eurasia in the 1400s to found imperial possessions in Africa, Asia and of course the Americas. Together Spain and Portugal dominated the world. They even got close to Australia. How did these Iberian empires grow? Why did they decline? And how might we remember them today? How are their pasts not dead, but not even past? They are the questions for today's Burning Archive. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! So, welcome, uh, listeners, to the second part of the Burning Archive Flowers of Empire episode where I'm responding to a listener question, a question from listener Jack, who asked about the Spanish and Portuguese empires once so dominant in the world. Whatever happened to them and why are they no longer a big figure, in, I guess, in our culture? Why did they decline? In the previous part of this episode, I sort of coloured the general picture about the Spanish and Portuguese empires, about how they sort of broke out from the Iberian Peninsula with a bit of a, you know, crusading Christian spirit, you know, conquered various trading ports around the world and, of course, the Americas, from which vast wealth was extracted. But also, I guess, a new type of society was kind of formed and at with tremendous devastation but also with cultural with new aspects of the culture and as with most things there's a bit of a ambiguous legacy about all of that that there was also something of a black legend all about the conquistadors and the idea of Spain being or the history of Spain being nothing but cruelty, political reaction, religious bigotry, uh, symbolised by Monty Python's uh, parody, I guess, of the Spanish Inquisition. And something of an English myth, I guess. And I guess in painting the story arc of the Spanish Empire from the Reconquista, the the explorers and the mapping of the oceanic routes, the crossing of the Atlantic, the knocking on the port doors of coastal Eurasia, uh, the conquests of America, the capture for the colonisation of the Philippines and Manila, the Golden Age, the wars of the 18th century, the Bourbon reconstruction and the scientific expeditions which I will uh, kind of have a bit of a look at a little bit more here that those things occurring in the 1700s the devastation of Napoleon's uh, Peninsula War in the early 19th century or the early 1800s loss of the various American territories, culminating in 1898 with its uh, annus 
Horribilis, where Cuba, Puerto Rico and the Philippines were all captured by America, uh, the new empire, the new rising empire, and then finally year of imperial nostalgia under Franco through the 20th century. Um, so that's the sort of story arc. Um, and uh, what I'm going to do today is just, or in this episode, this part of the episode is just add a couple of things there about Port- the Portuguese Empire and quickly look at reasons for success and decline before really going into a, a bit more depth around a emblematic figure of the Spanish Empire, uh, a key figure of the Hispanic Enlightenment based in South America, in Colombia primarily, or New Granada as it was called then. And that is a person known as Jose Celestino Mutis. And this will be a bit of a callback to the uh, reference early in the first part of the show, the first part of the uh, previous episode, or the first part of this uh, extended episode on the Spanish Empire and the Portuguese Empire to Felipe Fernandez Amesto's description of the Botanic Gardens of Madrid as, I guess, a symbol to represent the Spanish Empire, both its, uh, or at least the, the what we have to be grateful for or to to acknowledge as well as all the the violence and, and the violence and the the terrible stuff uh one of the uh, enduring and in a way beautiful legacies of the spanish empire so that's what i'm going to cover uh today let's quickly then talk about a couple of extra things about the portuguese empire uh, now, to some degree, the Portuguese Empire has some similar has a similar kind of story arc. I think, you know, there's the explorations and the Catholicism and the the Enlightenment period as well. And but it was an even more long lasting empire than Spain. And as I think I might have mentioned last week, it really only ends in like the 1970s with uh, Portugal leaving East Timor just to our north here in uh, the great southern land of Australia and also leaving Angola. And indeed, uh, I read in my uh, research for the show that in some ways it was really in the post-World War II era that some of the Portuguese colonies really became most profitable. Um, Angola became most profitable in the uh, in that sort of period. So it was quite a wrench for Portugal to lose lose that um, that power. Again, Portugal occupied some different parts of the world, and in general, it was less of a territorial empire. However. Uh, so you know the the sort of I guess uh, cliche perhaps it was it was more of an empire of trading posts, little fortress trading posts on the coasts of Africa and uh, and Eurasia, Southern Asia and and East Asia, places like Taiwan and 
going to Japan, Macau, uh, Goa, and the various slave ports in Africa as well. But of course there was one huge exception to that, which was Brazil, uh, which Portuguese uh, the Portuguese sort of uh, discovered accidentally, apparently, in around about 1500. And it was their large territorial uh, empire. And the great the great 1980s film, The Mission, is, um, you know, I guess gives some sense of the role of both Spain and Portugal and the Jesuits and the Guarini and all that sort of thing in uh, that that sort of era so Brazil was the great exception and it developed I guess a little bit perhaps more in the way of the big uh, South American Central American and North American Spanish uh, colonies uh, with a mix of immigrant Spanish indigenous Amerindian and African slaves shipped across the Atlantic so but it the to just characterize uh, Portugal as a trading sort of empire rather than a territorial empire isn't really accurate Um, and that's an important distinction to make there's a couple of remarkable stories around the Portuguese empire clearly one of those is just the period when Portugal and Spain were together uh, in a joint monarchy from about the 1570s, 1580s through for about another hundred years. Uh, and then another one is uh, a little bit linked to to uh, the story of like the loss of the South American all the rebellion of the Central and South American Republic uh, um, states, I guess, against the Spanish Empire, like Colombia and Bolivia, etc. Um, Port Brazil also had a had a sort of a separation from Portugal in that sort of year around 1800, 1840, but a slightly more complicated one. And I'm just going to really briefly sketch that sort of story now, which was um, a little bit like uh, the impact of Napoleon on Spain's empire. Um, Napoleon also invaded Portugal. And when he did, the Portuguese royal family, the House of Barganza, um, fled Portugal sailed across the Atlantic with the help, of course, of the British Royal Navy, or not perhaps, uh, of course, um, but uh, and sort of set up uh, their de facto, their sort of capital in exile in Rio de Janeiro, which then became the capital, not just, well, not of Brazil, but of the Portuguese Empire, and it was then from Rio de Janeiro that the Portuguese sort of royal family ruled their empire, which was still intact in various places um, around the world. It also had the effect of making Brazil um, a more capable and independent 
political entity in itself. It was now the capital of the empire. And so maybe we should call it the Portuguese slash Brazilian empire. And led to, I guess, you know, I guess more self-confidence amongst the elites, elites from all social, social strata. Napoleon's defeated in 1815, etc. And the king of uh, Portugal, perhaps realising that, you know, uh, there was this greater sense of independence and capability amongst his subjects in Brazil, gave Brazil a sort of equal status as part of a united kingdom of Portugal, Brazil and the Agarves. And it stayed that way for seven years and the king sent his uh, son, Dom Pedro, to be Prince Regent. Five years after Napoleon's defeat in at Waterloo, there is a uh, there was a what's called the Constitutionalist Revolution uh, broke out in Portugal, which was really I guess a kind of um, a bit like what was happening in a little happened a little bit later in Britain and you know other countries around Europe, which was the sort of growth of a a sense of liberal, as in small l liberal, uh, classic 19th century parliamentary constitutional institutions, and started doing that. And the people back in Portugal also perhaps uh, wanted to make Portugal, not Brazil, great again. So they insisted that the king head on back here and rule from, from Lisboa. Pedro, however became the sort of the lightning rod for rebels against central authority from Lisbon back. And effectively, after a complicated process, I'm not really going to go through, uh, he, he broke away from Portugal and declared himself the king of an independent country, Brazil. And then there was, you know, a bit of a war and that sort of thing. But that's really quite a remarkable story. But... Again, perhaps not so different. I mean, different in its particulars, but similar to the broad pattern, I guess, of the sort of mutual influence of the societies and the ideas of both the South and Central America and the European Empire, imperial states sort of generating ideas that destabilize the imperial elites and give them. Uh, these sort of liberal French revolutionary sort of constitutionalist ideas that uh, support their move to national independence. So it, there's a bit of a anecdote there for uh, the Portuguese fans out there. And look, um, uh, again, just emphasising Portugal was actually a surprisingly successful uh, empire and um, a, a surprisingly long-lived one and one in which there was extensive emigration apparently uh, from Portugal itself which is a relatively small fairly you know resource-free little strip of country on the west coast west yeah the west coast of sort of Spain there um, 
a narrow sort of kind of strip of land off on the west coast um and and one of the long-term reasons for the success of the portuguese empire was the the kind of constant circulation of elites around the different places but also the rootedness of some of those elites back in in their in their um in their colonial societies portugal probably deserves its own podcast but i think hopefully that's given uh jack a little bit of a sense of an answer to his question specifically in relationship to portugal okay so i want to quickly discuss reasons for success and decline before getting into the sort of story about the flowers of empire and the botanical gardens and jose celestino amutus so why did these empires succeed uh, was it just chance it's it's a curious thing and uh, i just don't know if that's an answer i can readily give but it, it lies at the core of this enigma why was it that there was i think what felipe fernandez amesto calls this sort of european outbreak that saw in the 1400s those empires the best uh, you know i guess the the the, na- the big naval empires established out of spain and portugal and it does seem that in part goes to the sort of crusading mentality maybe but how much is happenstance and the flukes of the winds and good fortune and how much is because i mean i guess it's not an easy thing to cross the seas and found an empire how much is is part of that intense ambition and purpose that was given them by uh, their their sense of their greatness and their christian mission um i am not going to proffer an opinion on but i think that is one of the key key kind of dilemmas around why you know what lay behind these uh, empires succeeding so much why did they decline uh and you know with any explanation for the decline of an empire you, I mean, it's a bit like the episode I gave on the fall of the Roman Empire, where there was some historian who, who you know, counted up all the different explanations offered over time for why the why did the uh, empire decline, and uh, there were over a hundred of them, and so it's a little. There's there's no more reason to think that it would be any less complex for uh, Spain and or Portugal. There are quite a few things that get mentioned a fair bit. So, for example, one of the central facts about the Spanish Empire was its its silver trade, its extraction of the, the metals of South and Central America, and I don't know if there was any in the North American colonies, but in the South and Central America. And it's shipping of those both back to Europe uh, for currency, I guess, and the Royal Treasury. 
and also its shipping of them to China for trade. And that certainly brought much wealth, but it also brought long-term inflation, I believe. And, you know, people have charted the impact of all that on uh, prices and money supply and all that... um, all that kind of quantitative sort of historical perspective and although it was a boon for Spain and part of its wealth it also sort of uh, created long-term financial sort of problems for them as well. There's always the question of had they done you know was it overreach and it well I guess the it was the first time that there was an empire on which the sun had never set. So I guess that's certainly reaching further than uh, any other time. But uh, I think as part of the story arc um, showed last week, uh, the empire waxed and waned at different times, and it was really well into um, even the period where Australia was settled and colonised by the British in the 1788 plus, that the Pacific was a Spanish lake. So, and then Spanish historians themselves wondered whether there was a, some kind of, well, there was whether it was the black legend, whether there was a cultural weakness, a moral failing, a calcification of the cultural dynamism of the early era of Isabella and Charles V, etc., which in later years led to long-term institutions like the uh, Spanish Inquisition and all that sort of thing that sort of sucked the dynamism out of Spain's Uh, imperial institutions and others of course just say well it was all because the British Navy defeated uh, Spain and then uh, Britannia ruled the waves but again that tends to be a little bit contradicted by the fact that uh, uh, well as I said before Spain was perceived as uh, the Pacific was perceived as a Spanish lake which uh, it was able to control British and other other piracy against its silver uh, galleons, reasonable effect, so that the the Spanish or the Manila galleon kept operating uh, all the way up to about eighteen fifteen. In the end, perhaps it's uh, the constant tension in historical interpretation of rise and fall of empires about how much things are like structural deep underlying causes things like inflation and overreach and culture and ideas versus how much things are contingency and events and there's certainly no doubt that the events of Napoleon's invasion of Spain and Portugal in the early 19th century, destabilising the elites of the country, I guess cutting off the head of its uh, of its regime. I'm not literally cutting the heads off, but you know what I mean. And it severed the relationships with the 
colonial societies mm. and also stimulated the independence movements in in South and Central America. So that had a big a big thing to do with it. And then of course that all happens, I guess, coincident really with the Industrial Revolution in which in particular Britain has uh, a, a crucial uh, period of advantage which it then uh, exploits mercilessly to uh, become the global, well, maybe not quite the global hegemon, but a, a, a dominant power in 19th century in the 19th century world to the disadvantage of Spain and Portugal. Felipe Fernandez Amesto makes the comment that perhaps what requires explanation is not really why things declined, but why why it was successful for so long. And and he describes it as uh, the empire of the inexplicable. Certainly there it was partly built on the extraction of the metals of America, the exploitation of the uh, indigenous labour of the Americas, uh, as well as the institutions that uh, the Europeans brought and forged together with uh, the peoples they encountered, together to some degree, as well as uh, all that stuff about the sort of counter-reformation, etc., that was part of the energy and the ideas and the uh, the cultural reach and influence of of the empire. But I guess his other comment is it really was uh, a unique, a unique global empire because it was the only, the first and the only empire of both land and sea that was created without industrial technology and without industrial resources. All the significant empires, I guess, since have really been uh, partly reliant on all the many, many things that uh, Britain was able to use and others were able to use that just gave the empires a, uh, or that America is using today, uh, that gives it an, uh, an ability to span the oceans and span the continents in a way that we that was simply not possible before Spain. All right, so let's have a little look then at, you know, there are many things you could pick out about the Spanish Empire and the Portuguese Empire, many, many tragic things, but I thought I'd probably look at a, a more, mm, I guess, beautiful an enigmatic representative story about uh, the Spanish uh, Empire. And that is around the story of the great scientific expeditions uh, conducted in the 1700s, which continued from like about the 1730s and were part of the sort of response Spain to challenges with 
debt and their their rivals like Britain and the others in their fights with the Seven Years' War and the, the American War of Independence and a growing sense within the you know, parts of the Spanish elite that they needed to make better use of the, and this is a quote uh, from representative figure uh, Casino Gomez Ortega from Madrid in 1780 in a uh, sort of a pamphlet on the natural history of the Malagueta or Tabasco pepper and news of the uses, virtues and the free trade of this healthy and delicious spice where he wrote that Spain needed to make more use of the most benign and fertile territories of the world, of the Spanish Empire, and so to take advantage of the natural products that they give us, extending knowledge and consumption of them in our country and encouraging their extraction through free trade. So there you go, we have the Spanish Empire to thank for Tabasco sauce. So the Hispanic Enlightenment was part of all this, uh, and they were in regular, a number of the figures of the Hispanic Enlightenment were in touch with the uh, Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, whose house in Uppsala, Sweden, I have... Uh, actually stood in and there's a wonderful little museum there if you're ever in Uppsala and want to visit it and also indeed my guest in the episode this archive is for the players Isaac Rich has also visited that um, that uh, wonderful little museum so yeah it was uh, it was a period really from the 1730s through to about 1800 or so uh, and it culminated in uh, some great uh, voyages by a person called Malaspina, Alessandro Malaspina, who had a voyage between 1789 and 1794, uh, around about the same time as some great French scientific expeditions as well, like the Bodan and... Um, uh, so that went round sort of southern part of Tasmania. So a lot of the French names that are on the sort of part, the southern sort of part of Tasmania, are actually named after those explorers. Um, but uh, the Malaspina expedition, if I could just go on a slight sidetrack, so it actually went for about five years in the 1790s and sailed across the Pacific Ocean and actually sailed into Port Jackson or Sydney in 1792. And one of the uh, junior officers on the expedition wrote to the colony's patron, Sir Joseph Banks, also a botanist. Uh, we'll get back to our, our Spanish Empire botanist in a sec and said that a nation renowned, and like in 1792, the colony in uh, Sydney was kind of on a knife edge of viability, like, hey, it could it could easily have not actually survived. Uh, you know, there was like not very many people here, and they weren't doing very well with their crops, and they had all sorts of other kind of issues. But he's so a nation renowned, a nation meaning 
Britain, renowned throughout the world, which has left nothing untried, will also overcome with the happiest omens by the most assiduous labour and by its own determined spirit the great obstacles opposing it, or those problems I refer to, in the foundation of what may one day become another Rome. So there you go. So predictions that Australia will become the next Roman Empire, uh, like many predictions, hasn't really turned out that way. And what I sort of just wanted to point out about was the Spanish, uh, who, you know, it was still a Spanish lake, the Pacific, and they were they were actually quite worried in 1788 about uh, the this new British colony in the South Pacific, with one of uh, Malaspina's uh, naval officers uh, warning that this would lead to uh, significant dangers for Spanish possessions in the Pacific, including the Philippines, etc. Like, I mean, that was. You know that was the central one of the central nodes of the Manila Galleon and the trade with China and Japan. After Malaspina had been to Sydney, he wrote to his uh, superiors in the Spanish Royal Navy that uh, there was a terrible future danger for Spain from this English colony and that the history of the invasions of the Huns and Alans in the most fertile provinces of Europe would be revived in our surprised colonies. The pen trembles to record the image, however distant, of such disorders. So there you go, a fresh new perspective on the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific where Australia is threatening the world. So let's have enough of all these diversions and let's talk about Jose Celestino de Mutis, who was one of the key people who was part of these expeditions and who actually went like he was about 28 or something like that. He trained as a doctor and a priest and for a while he taught I think at the at the University of he taught I think at the University of Seville and he was kind of again part of the Hispanic Enlightenment and encountered a little bit of trouble as did Malaspina I should say from the Spanish Inquisition Inquisition. Asking too many questions and getting and Mutis himself getting quite frustrated with the kind of religious blinkers that some of the uh, teachers at the university he encountered were applying to things, not really looking, approaching things, I guess, scientifically, but all with uh, genuine curiosity, but in a sort of uh, religious, ideological sort of way. So he left Madrid and pursued his passion for botany in the new colony of New Granada, or the long-established colony of New Granada. And from 1761 until his death in 1808, 
He worked uh, meticulously and assiduously in Bogota and other parts of the South American colonies, collecting botanical specimens and doing a whole lot else. And one of the things he did was to write to the great Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus and to send him samples of some of the remarkable plants uh, that he was discovering in Colombia and, and in that region. And in one of his letters to Linnaeus, he said, Formerly, before I left Europe, I could scarcely give credit to the accounts of the vast fertility of the country about the river of the Amazons, but since I have been an eyewitness of such fertility, though I could not previously conceive an idea of it, I can readily give my testimony that many years would scarcely be sufficient for an able botanist and expert draftsman to delineate, describe and arrange systematically the immense variety of plants found in that country. But that, in effect, is what he did. And he became one of the great collectors who uh, sent knowledge in and contributed to the botanical gardens of Madrid which Felipe Fernandez Amesto described as one of the great ornaments of the European Enlightenment and contributed to this great hub of a global chain of gardens and expeditions. And I guess there is a connection to Australia there too because Mutis became like a member of the, uh, all corresponded with the Royal Society whose president was Joseph Banks who, I guess, followed the Spanish example in establishing the English Kew Botanic Gardens as a repository for the specimens he was gathering from his Pacific voyages, including the ones to Australia. And so, of course, that's that same Joseph Banks, who Banks is named after. So botany was one it was the great science of these pre-industrial empires. Um, it seems like just like gardening now, but it was a crucial science. It sought wealth not just from gold and conquest, but also from the, the world's most lucrative plant goods. In South America, there was particularly interest in extracting the new wealth from these plants. Uh, for example, tree chinchona was a plant the Spanish observed the indigenous American healers using chinchona as a way to control fevers and then sort of tried to adapt it for medicinal purposes. And uh, I think that's basically the plant that quinine comes from, which is course the the basis for tonic water and chinchona was became one of the spanish crown's uh, monopoly goods and our friend jose uh, celestino mutus who was both a doctor and a botanist actually laid out whole plantations of chinchona and to support this sort of enterprise he was interested not just in the mineral wealth but also how the empire could be supplied with both agricultural food goods and also a pharmacopoeia and these are his words a pharmacopoeia as in a like a pharmacy as a substitute for eastern spices controlled by rival empires 
But while there was, I guess, commerce, etc., and uh, big imperial hopes for enormous wealth to come from some of this, Mutis himself was driven very much by motives of uh, education and curiosity. And I guess his his love of the beauty of the plants. He wasn't a great finisher. Apparently he published almost nothing. And yet he made enormous, enormous collections. And he indeed practiced his science, his scientific practice in New Granada for 48 years. And now some people like to use the term scientific imperialism to describe things like these, you know, the spread of this enlightenment idea. But in Mutis's case, it was clearly something a little bit more than just a projection of power and ideas and a desire to classify the world. He was genuinely awestruck in a way by the uh, extraordinary fertility of the plants of South America. He didn't publish much. He didn't do much self-promotion, unlike, uh, say, Joseph Banks or the person who was actually running the Botanic Gardens of Madrid. He never really went back to metropolitan Spain. He stayed in Colombia. And he was driven by this sort of fused religious and enlightenment wonder at the exquisite diversity that he found in his adopted land so much so he never ever returned to spain he fostered the spread of science within the provinces of new granada and he trained the sort of local artists who would draw the or paint the the you know representations of the specimens and he was an active supporter of uh, and trained up the, the the various mixed ethnicity, the Creoles and Mestizos of New Granada in this practice and was quite dedicated to the education of uh, the local peoples. He really established quite a sort of a local enterprise, so to speak, of all the artists and zoologists and botanists and collectors and other people who did this huge enterprise of pulling together what ended up being more than 24,000 plants that he had in his collection and indeed the botanical gardens in Bogota in Colombia are indeed named after Jose Celestino uh, Mutis and there is a broad uh, recognition of his important role in not just collecting all this stuff but also uh, supporting the education of the local peoples um, rather than just exploiting them. And so in a way the practical science and the art of his uh, expedition in the sense of his constant travelling out to collect the plants of this area rather than, you know, sailing the oceans. The work that he did there created opportunities and social roles for many people and nourished a sort of a more radical Latin American enlightenment that would actually be part of the later rebellion 
against the Spanish Empire in Colombia. In this way, I guess, these these Hispanic Enlightenment expeditions were, were ventures of complex people, in some ways quite beautiful ventures of complex people. The idea of discovering, I think they discovered and labelled, named, identified like six and a half thousand plants and gave this enormous, enormous uh, collection of plants as well as supporting, you know, I guess some early industries around them. But there is a sort of irony to all of this. One can tell the story in a sort of ironic, somewhat uh, tragic way, or maybe it's not tragic in the end, but when soon after Mutis's death, the the people of Colombia, well, the New Granada area, they revolt against Spain. And some of the people associated with Mutis and his library and stuff, his collection, were among the, the rebels. So it was his whole herbarium, his library and his huge collection was sort of closed down and they were all packed up and shipped back to Spain in apparently 105 crates to carry all the specimens. And then they were all sent back to the Madrid Botanic Gardens towards the end of the Peninsula War with uh, Napoleon. And there they were stashed in the tool shed of the Madrid Botanic Gardens. And like Mutis himself, forgotten until rediscovered in the 20th century. In the 1920s, I think it might have been an American, I'm not sure. But anyhow, someone had a fossic around in the tool shed of the Madrid Botanic Gardens, which, you know, with one thing and another had sort of fallen into a bit of neglect and they saw they found this enormous kind of collection of plants um this astonishing astonishing collection of plants the work began to restore these things which was delayed to some degree because of the spanish civil war and then world war Two. But ultimately, in the 1950s, some of the books and collections, drawings, paintings of these uh, specimens, these thousands of paintings of specimens prepared by both Mutis and his sort of Colombian collaborators, was made known to the world. And the and has since been published in various forms and has been part of the sort of renovation and reconstruction of the Madrid Botanic Gardens. Not quite as dramatic a story of uh, near destruction of a great cultural treasure as uh, the Beowulf uh, manuscript with its um, librarian jumping from the burning building with the sole copy of Beowulf. 
but in other ways almost as moving and and uh, beautiful a version of the neglect and forgetting of a cultural treasure cultural treasure in the sense of that enormous collaborative work to gather all those uh, plants together and it's neglect but rediscovery by people with compassion for the past who can remember that the past is never dead the past is not even past and while there are many horrible things that one doesn't really want to remember about the Spanish Empire and while the conquistadors represent you know I guess an ideology to dominate dominate people and a crusading idea the expeditions of the Hispanic of the Hispanic Enlightenment the extraordinary curiosity driven uh, compassion driven work of someone like Jose Celestino Mutis do represent something better out of empire and science than re- you know sheer power sheer exploitation indeed as Felipe Fernandez Amesto wrote in Millennium This is what imperialism at its best could mean in the early modern world. To be able to cull the flowers of empire from an astonishing diversity of climes, as in climates, and make them bloom together in scientific proximity. And ever since I learnt the story of Jose Celestino Mutis, I guess I've always had this sort of, you know, sense that there's rather more to the history of the Spanish Empire than the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! So let me just wrap up with three concluding thoughts about what, does all this chat about the Spanish, all these ramblings about the Spanish Empire, tell us about the world today and how we might want to remember it? And I think there's three big points that I'd probably bring out. First of all, America is a successor to the Spanish Empire as well as a successor to the English Empire. For sure, the Anglo tradition let's say has perhaps been dominant in America but I don't think it's really possible to understand America without having an understanding of its Hispanic past and this is a story beautifully told in another book by Felipe Fernandez Amesto uh, Our America a Hispanic History of the United States it's it's a, it's an extraordinary story, and once you r- become more aware of it, how you know California has a Hispanic past, Texas has a Hispanic past. That there's not just a movement from west to east to settle or to refashion the American continent. There is also a movement from south to north. Uh, moving up from the Spanish, Spanish, um, you know, Central American colonies. The second big thing is this to appreciate the cultural legacy of 
Spain, you of the Spanish Empire and I guess the Portuguese Empire, you can't just look at sort of liberal progressive ideas. You also have to look at Catholicism, a sort of, I guess, a conservative humanism. There's a very strong Spanish liberal tradition as well and the sort of legacy of the Counter-Reformation. And that story, as indeed with José Celestino Mutis, is not a simple good guys, bad guys story. There is a very rich and complicated intertwined tradition there of culture, Catholicism, humanism, enlightenment, counter-reformation, liberalism, conservatism, and uh, appreciating the good and the bad of all the strands of that story is I think essential to really appreciating the Spanish Empire or appreciating, understanding uh, being mindful of the historical presence of the Spanish Empire and then I guess the third big thing is you know what is known as the Columbian Exchange the, the, the movement of plant material from the American continents to the rest of the world. You think about Europe, but it's much broader than Europe. It is, you know, so chilies, tomatoes. I mean, how can you imagine much Asian food without chilies? Um, tomatoes, quinine, avocados, potatoes, etc. This is one of the most enduring, enduring things about the impact of the Spanish and Portuguese empires, but particularly the Spanish empire, I guess. And it's something that, well, we, we simply could not really get through a day of eating without thinking about the legacy of that experience. And it was really, I guess, the Spanish empire both in a military and an exploitative way, but then also in a deeply appreciative and supportive and scientific and uh, curiosity-driven way, in thinking of Jose Celestino de Mutis, that drove that Colombian exchange and that exchange of the empire of flowers. So I hope that gives you a sense of over two quite long episodes what the Spanish and the Portuguese Empire were, just the scale of their their history over time and over geography and some of the key people and the key ideas and the key legacies uh, of uh, these forgotten empires on which the sun for a while never sets. These forgotten empires on which for a while at least the sun never set. Okay that's the end of this Flowers of Empire double episode edition. Next week I am going to begin the series of responding to Isaac Rich's questions about history, which were set out in episode 32. This archive is for the players, which came out in December uh, 2021. I'm going to begin responding to that by looking at the broad theme of games and because... 
question raised in that episode was, are computer games the last best hope of culture vultures and history buffs? Should we turn to the dragon slayers of Skyrim to save the treasures of the past from the dragon fire of the burning archive? So I'm going to begin by looking at the broad theme and question of games and play, including deep play and history. What's their role in history and what do they tell us about history? I hope you'll join me then. I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes and thanks again so much to listener Jack for suggesting such a fabulous question. And if you do want to suggest your own topics for the Burning Archive, do contact me at theburningarchive at gmail.com. And until next week, do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now.